This is episode 173 of That Shakespeare Life. Our show this week is brought to you by listeners just like you who signed up to become members here at That Shakespeare Life. Members get access to exclusive behind-the-scenes content, including detailed history show notes, virtual tours, documentary films, games, activities, and so much more. Sign up today at castycash.com slash member and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Bess Chilver, historical costumer. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend, Cassidy Cash. On the one hand, it had a charitable function, supposedly, but of course, it became a place of extraordinary cruelty and um, brutality. In fact, the worst of Bridewell was that it would starve its prisoners to death. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Bridewell Palace was built in the early 16th century as a residence for King Henry VIII. The palace was a unique structure because it deviated from the architectural designs of the time period by not having a great hall and instead featured an elaborate staircase. It was also constructed around a large inner courtyard. Under Edward VI in the 1550s, Bridewell Palace was given to the City of London for a new purpose. It became a home for the city's homeless children and a place of punishment for, quote, disorderly women. It was run in conjunction with Bedlam Hospital throughout Shakespeare's lifetime and formed the blueprint for later large prisons, including the Clerkenwell Bridewell Prison, opened as a correctional institute for prostitutes and vagrants in 1615, and Tothill Fields Bridewell Prison that was opened in 1618 in Westminster. The building itself was mostly destroyed by the Great Fire of London in 1666, but the reputation of Bridewell would far outlast the original structure, with the term Bridewell continuing in use around the world into the present day as a term for a city's detention facility, usually close to a courthouse. Here today to explain the history of Bridewell Prison is our guest, Duncan Salkeld. Duncan Salkeld is a professor emeritus of Shakespeare and Renaissance literature at the University of Chichester and visiting professor at the University of Roehampton. He is author of three monographs, Madness and Drama in the Age of Shakespeare, Shakespeare Among the Courtesans, Prostitution, Literature, and Drama from 1500 to 1650, and Shakespeare and London. He is also the author of numerous articles and book chapters. He runs a specialist online course in early modern paleography. You can look for his contact details in the show notes for today's episode to reach out to him about these resources and those classes. We include links to Duncan and his work on Bridewell, along with links to the resources he recommends for you when you want to explore more into the history of one of England's most notorious prisons inside the show notes for today's episode. Find all these resources and be sure to leave your comments about what you think about the show today at CassidyCash.com slash episode 173. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP173. Hello, Duncan. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Cassidy. It's great to be here. 
Edward VI's establishment of Bridewell as a home for the vagrant children of London sounds benevolent to me when I read about it now. But then I got to thinking vagrancy was a crime in early modern England. So was this home actually a prison for the children seen as vagrant riffraff on the streets of London? Well, it's hardly a home in the sense that we conceive it today. But anyway, more of that anon, you know, there were children in Bridewell, certainly. But if we're talking about the the purpose of Bridewell right from the start, it's kind of part of a revolution in uh, Reformation theology. It comes from initially from the brain of Nicholas Ridley, Bishop of London, uh, and presumably people around him. It, he wants to kind of clear up the London streets, which have been filling up with the destitute poor after the dissolution of the monasteries. So Bridewell was set up in 1553 by Edward VI almost to his, his dying act, as p- a part of a sort of radical innovation, almost a revolution. It had initially been built in 1522 by Sir Thomas Wolsey, and but by Thomas Wolsey, and after his decline and demise in 1529, Henry VIII confiscated it from Wolsey and used it as a residence for the French ambassadors. Until that is, Nicholas Ridley petitioned the young Edward VI for it to be given over to the city authorities to house the destitute poor. So whereas it had been uh, Cardinal's Palace and then Henry VIII's Palace after that, because it was confiscated and then used as an ambassadorial residence, a beautiful building, there's this revolution that happens. A king's palace is turned over to house the poorest people in London. This is an extraordinary event. And it's part of the, I think, that sort of, you know, that sort of radical that potentially radical Christianity that lay at the heart of the Reformation in a way. Um, But of course, uh, at the same time, other institutions were founded as well. So in 1553, at the same time as Bridewell being founded, Christ's Hospital was founded for orphans. So the children were mainly farmed off to there. But children were kept in Bridewell. But at the same time, St. Thomas's Hospital was kind of refounded, as it were, or given over to the city, uh, a former monastic house in medieval times, given over to the city for the sick and the lame. And Bethlehem Hospital in 1557 in Bishopsgate was given over to the city authorities for the housing of the insane, for the mad. So you can see that you've got this sort of coordinated social policy, Bridewell to house the vagrant and indigent, indigent, vagrant, idle poor, Christ Hospital for orphans, St. Thomas's for the sick and the lame, Bethlehem for the insane. There's nothing quite like this coordinated social welfare policy, again, until the 19th century. So it's really quite an extraordinarily brave, bold, radical programme to clear up you know, the certain ills in London as, as the you know, bishop and, and his fellows saw them. But it all just went horribly wrong. Who were the majority of inmates at Bridewell? If we had all these different establishments for, for different portions of society, were, was it primarily children at Bridewell or did we have men and women incarcerated there as well? No, it's mainly men and women, uh, but there are children there and they they play quite an important part in in Bridewell's story. But it's mainly a mix of men and women and a fairly even split. between. So it's not mainly women being locked up, but um, orphaned or destitute uh, children were kept there and they were taken on as apprentices and given work to do, like making pins or nails or beating hemp or weaving fustian cloth. 
Um, most orphans, as I said, were sent off to Christ Hospital, but Christ Hospital couldn't take all of them, of course. In the early Jacobean era, in around about 1617-18, you get Bridewell sending children over to the Virginia colonies. And so in these lists of children who are sent across the ocean, you see the beginnings of America. But the great majority, as I say, were men and women incarcerated for petty crimes, such as cutting a purse or loitering, being an or idle loitering or straggling knave, or being a night walker or uh, a cut purse or, or being a prostitute or having sex out of wedlock, pretty much low level street crime. And sometimes in these in these records, you get very detailed information like we, we learned, you know, if a woman's had her, her purse cut. We get, uh, you know, someone asks, well, what was in it? And she'll say, well, two shillings and a silver thimble. <laughs> you know, you get to know what was in someone's pocket on a certain day. The, the, the details are that granular or that detail um, specific. Bridewell is referred to as a, quote, house of correction. Was the purpose of being sent to Bridewell to rehabilitate these criminals and return them to society? Bridewell was first conceived as a charitable endeavour in order to, yes, give people some kind of training, some sort of way back into work after being, you know, displaced and on the streets. But um, because it housed its own court and very often people were brought in for some perceived crime, it functioned partly as a judicial space. And that's what it really became. It became one of the most punitive institutions in London. Now, it didn't hang or execute its prisoners or, or, or its defendants and just strip them to the waist and tie them to a whipping post. So Bridewell was used to set the kind of destitute poor on work, as they said, you know, as they called it, spinning, hemp, milling uh, uh, in the mill, making bricks or nails. But it also wanted to kind of deter petty crime. And so and it did this by at the whipping post. So it had a kind of mixed mission statement, if you like. On the one hand, it had a charitable function, supposedly, but of course, it became a place of extraordinary cruelty and um, brutality. In fact, the worst of Bridewell was that it would starve its prisoners to death. But it didn't deter everyone. And sometimes prisoners would come in and be incredibly brash about it. And Christopher Beeston, Shakespeare's co-actor in The Lord Chamberlain's Men, is one of these people. He's accused in 1602 by Margaret White, of raping her. She's pregnant out of wedlock by another man, but she accuses Beeston, one of Shakespeare's co-actors, of raping her just outside Bishopsgate. And she accuses him to his face. And what he does is he brings in fellow actors, brings in his others, his Confederates players. Now, we don't know who they were, but um, they might have been members of the Lord Chamberlain's men like Augustine Phillips. But Beeston had over that summer been uh, transferred to Worcester's men. So it might have been Worcester's players who, who came in to support him. Anyway, these actors come in, behave like swaggering kind of louts uh, whom no one can touch. And um, they are very abusive to the governors, the magistrates. And the court are indignant about this and they're definitely going to take action against him. But they never do. Nothing more is heard of it. It just and, and Beeston becomes one of the most prosperous theatrical impresarios of Jacobean London. So London already had places like workhouses established for this kind of rehabilitation. What was the difference between Bridewell and the London workhouses? Why did they feel like Bridewell needed to be established? Well, Bridewell was essentially the very first London workhouse. 
So he employed these various what were called arts masters to take on young people and children or, or even adults as apprentices and set them to various kinds of work. William Brooks oversaw the apprentices weaving fustian cloth. Thomas Ballard oversaw the beating of hemp. And workhouses in that sort of Dickensian sense were really only established in the later 17th century, all the way through the sort of early part of the 17th century. There are people clamouring for more bridewells. And in 1609, an act was passed to establish sort of bridewells countrywide. The thing about Bridewell is it had its own sort of bureaucracy as well. It was an employer and it had sort of it was run by the Lord Mayor and the Court of Aldermen and it established subgroups. So it's more than just a workhouse. It really is a kind of London institution. So you've got small subgroups for managing various kinds of work, making bricks in the kilns and group for auditing the accounts and a small subgroup for overseeing bedlam. In fact, you know, how much these how much work these groups actually did was pretty uncertain, certainly with regard, with regard to bedlam. And occasionally the treasurer gets caught out filching money from the from the accounts. And in fact, if he is caught out, he's dealt with very severely indeed. So Bridewell isn't exactly a workhouse in that Dickensian 19th century sense, but it does have, it is an employer, you know, and it has roles like the steward, the matron, the matron's maid, a porter, a be- two beadles, has a minister to preach on Sundays, and it has a carpenter, it employs a carpenter to work on the, on the building. So it's kind of much more than just a hollow building with people set to work inside. It's, it's kind of operating as an institution. Now, you've mentioned this previously, but Bridewell was associated with and even under the joint administration for a time as Bedlam Hospital. Bedlam is infamous for rather squalid conditions for its inmates. Mm. Was Bridewell known for similarly rough conditions? Well, remember, it had been a king's palace before, cardinal's palace. And so, you know, it had gorgeous rooms. Uh, It had an enormously grand and ornate staircase. So, you know, Bedlam's rotting and falling apart, but Bridewell is one of the finest buildings in London. Um, uh, Henry Boyer, a painter, we know of him from the 1570s. He's arrested for being a pimp several times. He tells a friend that he almost starved in Bridewell. And that he confessed lots of things because he was near death and he he was from being famished. And he'd even written a letter to the Earl of Leicester pleading for Leicester's help in getting him out of there. And then he's brought back, he's brought back before the court to, to withdraw all of these things. In other words, he's under huge pressure. He complains about rigor and torture being used there. He, he calls it the, the he was by force, terror and rigor compelled at Bridewell to slander himself. And so uh, an almost a century after Boyer, there's a Quaker taken into Bridewell, Thomas Elwood, and he nearly died died of starvation there. So I imagine that the building itself was e- extraordinary and, uh, and fine in lots of ways, although, or, or, although perhaps a lot of the it's probably been stripped out of all its more sumptuous items. But at the same time, these prisoners are probably being fed very little, you know, a little bit of cheese, a little bit of porridge in the morning, maybe a bit of beef in the evening. And the, the porridge was terribly watery. So not, not at all nutritious. So I think 
you know, if you end up in Bridewell, you're you're going to suffer. You know, I, I mean, in 1575, there are a group of women prisoners, uh, Sybil Love, Dorothy, Dorothy Smith, Alice Saunders, Alice Hall, Alice Lewis and Elizabeth Grant. And they're all whipped at the whipping uh, for threatening to hang themselves. They're so desperate. You know, and you get lots of attacks on the matron. People don't know what to do with themselves uh, in in this prison. So we can't think that it was anything but a nightmare. Once incarcerated at Bridewell, you mentioned that this did used to be a palace, so it's not necessarily set up with what we would think of as prison cells in there. Were they kept in particular rooms or were they allowed to just walk around anywhere inside there? What did it look like to be incarcerated there? Well, I think instead of having like individual cells, they probably prisoners were probably locked up in chambers, you know, sort of groups of prisoners, particularly the, the, the female prisoners would be separated from the males. That would be the case. I mean, actually, you know, I talked about Bridewell being a, a revolution. That was the first of the revolutions in 1602. While the Beeston case actually was going on, another kind of minor revolution happened at Bridewell because in March that year, a group of what were called undertakers or private contractors were given the responsibility of running the prison. Somehow they took it over and the aldermen who served as magistrates were kind of kicked off, if you like, or they they withdrew. And what these undertakers did is steal all the best rooms for themselves and their families, move their families in and um, then simply neglected their duties. So that when all of this came to a miserable end in October 1602 and the magistrates got their prison back under their own control, the aldermen got it back and kicked the undertakers out. They listed all the complaints against these people who'd been running the prison. One of them was that the, the women prisoners of the light and lewd women prisoners were walking around freely and, and entertaining clients, as it were, uh, you know, and locking themselves in their own chambers. And they had their own keys to, you know, it was as, as though Bridewell had suddenly turned into the grandest brothel in London. It's extraordinary. And so, you know, after October, the governor set about reestablishing the sort of the traditional regime. And those those guys just get kicked out. Thomas Stanley and Nicholas Bywater and a fellow called Brownlow. Those people, they ran. They had a vision of Thomas Stanley did for prison reform. But in, the, in, in practice, they they just feasted with the the women prisoners that they liked and allowed others to escape away, including Mrs. Godfrey, Mistress Godfrey and Kate Arden. I think Ben Johnson refers to Kate Arden in the burning down of the globe, saying she was so hot, if you like, so so venereally infected that she must have been the one who set off the fire to burn the globe to the ground in 1616. <laughs> Were there doctors and nurses on staff at Bridewell? During the 16th and 17th century, I mean, we have the magistrates and the aldermen being kind of in charge, but was there any kind of medical staff there ensuring that people were cared for at at any level? Absolutely not. No, there was no doctor or nurse on the staff at Bridewell. There was a woman employed as a matron who'd be assisted by a servant girl. In the 1570s, that was a woman called Mary Bate. And in the early 1600s, a, a woman called Alice Millett served as, as matron. She was sacked for many misdemeanors. I don't know what they were exactly. Um, she was The matron was one of the jailers, you know, and, uh, you know, sometimes a, a woman prisoner would be brought into Bridewell and committed to the punishment of the matron. So the matron might have overseen that punishment. One of the jobs of the matron was to wash 
prisoners who came in, possibly male or, or female, although I don't know, maybe mainly female, washed those that came in in a foul condition, you know, if, if they were they were lice ridden or, you know, particularly filthy. And another uh, was to oversee women prisoners spinning flax. The, uh, another more intrusive job of the matron was to inspect those women who claimed that they were still a maid. So someone had made an allegation that they you know, had sex out of wedlock and they'd protest, no, I haven't, you know, I'm still a maid. The matron would be tasked with that job. In 1578, Jane Tross was punished for refusing to work and beating the matron. And she's Jane, Jane Tross is the most unruly prisoner in Bridewell. She's probably the most unruly woman in the whole of late Elizabethan London. Um, Thomas Nash, yes, makes a reference to her in the, the beginning of The Unfortunate Traveller. She's just an extraordinary force of nature. Jane Tross. Nobody can keep her quiet. Nobody can keep her in prison. She breaks out so many times. She beats and strikes a matron. And uh, in the end, they ask her her father to take her away out of London. So there's no um, medical staff on hand. You know, Jane Tross possibly might have had, she might just have been fed up with, with what was going <laughs> on in Elizabethan London, you know. There is a reference to a doctor in 1599 in the Bridewell records, but that's probably a doctor of divinity who led the services in the chapel. Incidentally, the gates of the chapel are still visible at number nine Bridewell Gate in London. And we've talked about apprenticeship programs and how they were designed to return people back to society, at least with their intention at the outset. Do we have records of anyone graduating from one of these apprenticeship programs and successfully leaving Bridewell? Well, apprenticeship programs is a very nice way of putting something. That was, <laughs> Maybe you know, too generous. <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, orphans would be rounded up. You know, if your parents died or if your family were wiped out by plague or whatever, or the parish wardens or the beadles would come around you up and send you into Bridewell, perhaps. And you'd be forced into a kind of slave labour, which is pretty much what it was. And if you died doing that labour, then nobody really much noticed or cared. You know, there are no burial records that have survived of Bridewell, and it had its own burial ground. We don't have it. We can't calculate, you know, the death rates of prisoners, unfortunately. Uh, um, remember, outside of Bridewell, though, the apprenticeship system more generally was pretty much slave labour. I mean, you were very lucky if you had a, a you know, tolerant and kind and um, supportive master or mistress as an apprentice but usually you'd be worked to death you'd work every hour you know and you get very little for it and did anyone care no and uh, Bridewell is filled with the um, Bridewell prosecutions filled with runaway apprentices people who who run away and um, I'm thinking of Augustina Patra a little black girl who runs away from Lady Barclay diverse times brought in to be punished for it Lady Barclay by the way was by reputation, a very cruel mistress. So this is not misleading to say that this is a, an Elizabethan labour camp. You know, it's not far short of a gulag. So that begs the question of why Bridewell went on to become a blueprint for prisons around the world for centuries after Bridewell Prison was first established. I mean, we have a Bridewell prison in New York City today that was built really, in, yeah. the, in the 18th century, modeled after this one. And it and certainly sounds horrible. Why was Bridewell considered so successful? 
Yeah, I mean, there was one founded in Norwich as well, pretty soon after the, you know, in the 17th century, and probably, you know, uh, plenty of other places too, Bristol and Exeter, perhaps. But Bridewell was a great idea. Okay, so you kill two birds with one stone. One, you punish a petty offence. So, yeah. Uh, And two, you give the offender a chance to get back into society. What a great idea. Who could who could be against that? You know? <laughs> um, so it had appeal. And this is why people left legacies in their wills to Bridewell. You know, they would they would make charitable donations to it. You know, even Thomas Stanley, one of those undertakers who kind of came in as a private entrepreneur in a prison entrepreneur, he had good intentions. Um, and I, I think he he wrote a, a pamphlet about this, but it just went all went wrong. It was a, it was a mod, an impressive model, I suppose. But here is perhaps the key thing: Bridewell's made money. You know, if a if a wealthy, reasonably wealthy person was brought into court, charged with some relatively petty crime or being the father of a particular child or something, and he could pay. And usually it's a he who can pay and he can pay uh, money for the relief of the poor in this hospital. That's the quote. Money for the relief of the poor, because the poor in this, they're not prisoners. They're the poor. When when you want money, they're the poor. And so Bridewell was it did have income streams. It had charitable donations and it could find it much preferred to whip people than find people. But if there was money available, they'd go after it. So uh, it's possible that municipal authorities around the country regarded Bridewells as a kind of way of being seen to address the problem. It did offer some, a local Bridewell would offer some local employment to, you know, constables or, or magistrates or to, you know, various keepers of, of one sort or another. And it might attract donations. So I, th- I think really in a way that Bridewell is a terrible, has a terrible history. And it's it's a prison failure from start to finish. I mean, it, it's historical evidence for the truth that prison probably doesn't really work. You know, that said, it was an institution that lasted for three centuries, and for in that sense, maybe it's a brutal and merciless success. Well, I know we would love to explore the history of Bridewell further. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? I think I would start really uh, on on Bridewell, perhaps with Paul Griffith's book, Lost London's Changed Crime and Control in the Capital City. Um, Ian Archer's book, The The Pursuit of Stability. 1993 is still an absolutely essential resource for these kinds of areas. Laura Gowing's work, Domestic Dangers, and her subsequent book as well, Women, Words and Sex in Early Modern England. And and then Eleanor Hubbard's City Women, Money, Sex and the Social Order. I think it's 2012. I think it's a really neat book and gives us quite a lot of detailed information about women, not just in Bridewell, but in other prisons as well. So these are just some of the books that, that I would go to. First of all, if I was going to research more on the problem, the social problems of the social history of early modern London. These are excellent resources. Thank you for suggesting them. We will place links to all of these books as well as to Duncan's work directly in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you visit those to find those links and check out some of these books. Duncan, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. 
Well, I had a bit of a think about this, but I think on the whole, I go for Lawrence Stern's The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, because it should keep me busy for a while and um, it's full of joy. Well, joy is a great thing to take with you to a deserted island. Absolutely. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Probably too many things at the moment, um, but I'm doing some work on uh, Shakespeare's early quartos. And so um, I'm just published on King Lear and uh, on that. And I'm drafting an article which is provisionally called Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure in Othello. But it won't it won't be given that title. (laughs) I don't think anyone will accept it with that title, but that's what it is for now. Well, I would find Bill and Ted in Othello. Fantastic. Well, we'll certainly look forward to seeing that come about. Thank you so much, Duncan, for being here and talking us through the history of Bridewell Prison. This has been a fun conversation. Thanks so much. Explore more history of one of England's most notorious prisons, along with direct links to Duncan and his work, all packed inside the show notes for today's episode. Find these resources at CassidyCash.com slash episode 173. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP173. Don't forget the video version of today's episode featuring archival images and paintings of Bridewell, all kinds of visual content we're not able to share here in the audio of the podcast, is available inside the members area of our show. Members get access to our entire collection of video versions of our show, along with award-winning animated plays, documentary films, virtual tours, and 16th century activities like card games and recipe tutorials, where you can cook and play games and foods right from the life of William Shakespeare. Our episodes are coordinated with printable history guides, recipe cards, game instructions, worksheets, lesson plans, and other illustrated resources that aren't available anywhere else. Join us inside the best little Shakespeare club ever at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.